Welcome to the Drop-In CEO Podcast. I'm Deb Coviello, and as the Drop-In CEO, I drop into businesses and assume the CEO role to enhance the human element and increase the results they achieve. This podcast is about bringing you conversations with expert guests who have achieved their greatest results built on a strong foundation of purpose, values, and elevating people. If you're a business leader, entrepreneur, or even just getting started in business, join us as we build the skills you need to achieve your goals. Hello, I am Deb Coviello, founder of the Drop-In CEO Podcast, and I am thrilled you have joined us on another episode where I get to speak to amazing thought leaders and share their insights with you and hopefully inspire you. And I ask if you love this episode, share with others, rate, review, so we can continue to bring you amazing program. And on a personal note, I am here to help the C-suite leaders of today and tomorrow navigate their challenges with confidence. And today, I am distinctly honored to bring onto the show Steve Blue, who is president and CEO of Miller Ingenuity, an international manufacturer of high technology projects that save lives and preserves the environment. And he is a published author of five books. He is an acclaimed keynote speaker. Some of his audiences have been Harvard Business School, the United Nations, Carnegie Hall, and he has been featured in many publications, including the Wall Street Journal. Fox News, Forbes, CEO Wall, and I am simply honored that he has dropped in today. Steve, welcome to the show. Deb, it's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for the invitation. I am so excited to have this conversation. And what drew me to Steve for my listeners is that he is an internationally renowned expert on leading change and business transformation, which is so aligned with what I do with my clients as well as help transform the leaders of tomorrow. So I can't wait for him to share his insights with you. But Steve, I would love for you to share a bit about your story and how have you arrived at doing some of the work you do now to help Seep Suite leaders as well. Well, I started with a bit of an odd background. I was a blue collar kid. My mother was a waitress. My father was a mechanic and they couldn't afford to put me through school so I put myself through school at night for many, 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 many years. In fact, I didn't get my bachelor's degree until I was 40 years old. I didn't get my MBA until I was 52 years old. So along the way, I was sort of mixing practical business knowledge and business experience with the academic world. And I found, uh, in fact, the other day, someone asked me, you know, which did you value more, the academic learning or the real world learning? I said, I, I value them both because as I grew up in my business world, the two sort of melded together. And I'd hear something in a classroom and I go, eh, no, no. so I'm sort of like there and it's not how it works, you know. And then I would turn it around and find something in the business world that could have been enabled by an academic situation that wasn't. So that's sort of how my academic world sort of evolved. And then I grew up in, you know, industrial companies. I started off as a factory supervisor. And then so right from the bottom of the factory floor, I learned how things really work in a company. And then over the years, I got enabled and known as a problem solver. So I would go anywhere in the company. I'd move anywhere in the company. I'd do anything in the company that needed to get done. 
uh, all the way from the beginning with the bottom factory supervisor up until the C-suite. So there really isn't any part of an organization that I haven't seen that I haven't been involved with. So, you know, when, when CEOs tell me, well, I don't think things are going this way at this part of my organization, I could say, you know what? No, that's not how it works. Let me explain that to you. So I've sort of been up and down, sideways, big companies, little companies, all kinds of industries. And then after I got some experience, I started writing books about it. As you mentioned, I'm a best-selling author of five books. But I just started writing what my experiences are and, and how things work. And then that evolved into professional speaking, which I've done a lot of. That's kind of my backstory. So very interesting. And there's so many things I want to dig into here. But you know, you bring up an amazing point that you just happen to be that person that was just that problem solver that had no issue with going wherever the problems were or pulled in. There are so many people out there that just get stuck. I am a subject matter expert this. I'll stay in my lane. I can't check the box on that. I can't move into that role because I don't have that experience. Tell me more about you in being pulled <laughs> into all these things when maybe you didn't have the background. What was it about you that they wanted you to be the problem solver, regardless of where it was in the organization? Well, you know what it was in the beginning, Deb, it was nobody else wanted to do it. <laughs> so I was, I was like the only guy who said yes. I remember one time, we didn't have children at the time. I moved my wife and I from Cleveland to Ann Arbor, Michigan. And it was a little hole-in-the-wall, dumpy factory, nowhere-in-sville that nobody wanted to touch. And it had all kinds of problems. And my peers said, oh, no, I'm not going there. And I said, you know, and the only reason they let me go is because no one else would take the assignment. In the beginning, it was nobody else would take it, so I took it. And then as I started learning how things work, over time, I started to get known as the go-to guy. If you got a problem that nobody else wants to touch, it's a toxic situation. It's not sexy. It's not glamorous. You know, send Blue over there and he'll go do it for you. And then, and then after a while, I couldn't divide my time enough in all the places that the company wanted me to go to to solve things. You know, that's one way where sometimes when people feel stuck, I can't get ahead in this role. Sometimes you have to go sideways or go where, like you say, nobody wants to go. Increase your breadth, your understanding, then you become a utility worker and highly valued. An interesting tactic that other people should try. Now, I'm curious though, writing. There are so many people out there, middle managers, C-suite leaders, they have their thoughts, they have their presentations, but they don't put their thoughts out there into the world because that's one way of impacting many. Now, I want to understand, you said you had all this experience, you wanted to put it into a book, but it's an investment in time. What propelled you to do that? And I'm curious, what's been the impact of some of that writing on the world? Yeah, it's a good point, Deb. It's a very big investment in time. I mean, the first book I did, I'll never forget it, Deb. I'm sitting there on my laptop in the living room and my wife's saying, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm writing a book. She goes, what? You don't know how to write a book. What would you write about? And that was a self-published book. And then as my books processed, I got a big publisher to pick up one and then they started gaining traction. And people ask me all the time, I wish I had time to write a book. And I tell them the same thing. You have lots of time. All you got to do is stop doing something else. It's very simple. And when I'm writing a book, you know, as you know, Deb, if you get a deal with a publisher, you'll get a contract and you're obligated to write a certain number of words. Usually in a business book, it's right, I don't know, 16, 80,000, something like that. 
And so, okay, I always figure, okay, I got to write 60,000 words. So I'm going to set a budget of writing a thousand words a day. That'll take me 60 days plus or minus a holiday, a weekend or whatever. Then add it on another 20,000 because any good editor will cut that back, make it more clear, make it, you know, more impactful, all that kind of stuff. And so when you're done, it's about a two to three month process. And then you turn it over to the publisher. So I tell people, I said, if you really want to write it, just do a, a thought stream, write what's ever in your head. Don't worry about if the diction is right or if the you know prose is right, any of that. Just get it down. You could cut back later on. If you cut back before the thoughts come out of your head, then you miss a whole lot of important ideas. And every single person, Deb, in the business world, actually on the planet, every single person has a lot of value to add to the world in the form of a book or a speech or an engagement. All they have to do is get it out there. I can't agree with you more on that. And what I tell some of my listeners is you have your own unique thoughts. Start writing them down on post-it notes. Put them anywhere on your whiteboard. Somebody someday needs to know or learn from you. If you don't get those thoughts down now, you're, they're going to be long forgotten. You need to preserve your legacy and leave an impact for the future. Right. So fast forward. Okay, so you were working <laughs> and then you got your bachelor's later in life. You got your MBA, write five books. And oh, by the way, you've also running your own company. So tell us what transitioned you from working from somebody else, being that go-to guy, gal, et cetera, to then forming your own company. I saw an opportunity of a business that had what everyone calls trap value that I knew it could unlock. And so I, I bought it. I said, you know, this is a business that has lots of potential and has lots of uh, ability to grow in the future. It's just undervalued right now, basically because leadership at the time was content to just sort of sitting back and going, yeah, everything's okay here, you know, yeah, our margins are okay, our sales are okay, you know, our profit's okay. I hate that, but that's what they were doing. And I tell CEOs all the time, don't ever be satisfied with okay. If you sit back ever, and think everything's okay, I guarantee a disaster is on the way. You just haven't seen it yet. And from a mindset perspective, yes, you saw an opportunity. You didn't like to see where the company was. You've never run a company before. What was it that convinced you, well, I'm going to do it now? I'd run lots of divisions before. Okay. By the time I got here, I'd run you know hundreds of millions of dollars worth of divisions of big corporations. And it's not the same as being the CEO. You could be a divisional vice president or a divisional president with P&L responsibility, which I had before I got here. But it's not the same as being the guy who can make all the decisions. When you're in a big company and you're a divisional president or, CEO or a vice president, you need somebody's permission to do something. Not most things, but there are some limits of authority where you have to have somebody. Else. So there's always somebody in a big corporation is like watching over you and can tell you if you're about to do something really stupid or stop you from whether it's stupid or not. When you get to be a CEO, it's like, it's you. You can't blame it on the shareholders. You can't blame it on the board. You can't blame it on the employees. If you screw up, you can only blame it on yourself. And that's empowering. And it's also frightening for people who aren't used to it. So what you bring is great insight. And I do hope a few of the people I have recently spoken to who have checked in with me after a year and say, hey, Deb, I'm going through a career transition. And I have had a number of them who have CIOs, CTOs of startup or medium-sized companies. And as they're thinking about their next opportunity, they talk about, well, I'm networking for 
the same kind of role. And I said, why are you doing that? I said, you have all the skill sets of being a CEO or president of a company and their mind doesn't think like that. They don't think like that. They check themselves out from that opportunity. And I see so many lost opportunities for people to be able to be more impactful. Yeah, it's all about comfort zone, Deb. It really is. When you've got the big brother watching over you, that's more comfortable than when you don't. And when you can blame, and people in big corporations do this all the time, you know this. They blame, well, the CEO wouldn't let me, accounting wouldn't let me, the legal department wouldn't let you. Human resources stop me. When you're the CEO, you can only blame yourself and you have to be comfortable in that space. And I love it because I make all the decisions and I'm comfortable with screwing up. And if I screwed up, Deb, absolutely, a bunch of times. In fact, I think one of your other questions is, you know, did you ever fail in anything? Sure, I have. Didn't stop me from trying, though. Yeah, that's really inspiring because I will tell you, and I've been experimenting with, they call it a mastermind. I call it the drop-in CEO collective. It is a safe place where I bring together people aspiring in their career to learn new skills, learn how to network and present themselves, and also a space where the collective can help them solve particular issues. And I have been trying and starting and experimenting, and some things work and some things don't. But I clearly have a vision that this is the work I'm meant to do. And people say, yes, keep going. Even if I don't get a lot of people attending, I'm going to keep going because I know it's right. (laughs) And I get to make all the decisions, which I like. (laughs) But, you know, you have so many years of experience. You've seen a lot of things and you have some insight about silent business killers and how they can be avoided. So shed light on some of that insight that you have. I'm going to start with the latest silent business killer. I'm going to write a piece for Industry Week, maybe next week about this. The biggest silent business killer in effect today for most businesses is healthcare expense. It's the hidden expense that's going to sink your business. And let me tell you why I think that I won't dwell on this. Healthcare expenses rise 10% a year. Okay. So let's say in your business, you know, and of course it's an expense. You got marketing expense, product development expense, benefits expense, and all that. Let's say your healthcare expenses are a million dollars a year now. If that raises 10% every year, how long does it take before it becomes an unsustainable expense for your business? Because now I have to either start eliminating benefits for my employees, which won't go well for recruiting, or I have to cut back on something else, product development or healthcare or marketing expenses or whatever. And so most CEOs, and I used to be guilty of this, Deb, I would sit back and say, oh, well, going to get 10% from you know health partners or Blue Cross, whatever. What are you going to do? You know? Try to make it up somewhere else. And instead, a few years ago, we started finding novel ways to restructure our healthcare expenses without eliminating or reducing employee burden. And I've reduced my healthcare expenses by 30% in the last couple of years. So I would encourage every CEO to look at that because they don't. Most CEOs were like me. They go, yeah, I'm, I'm on marketing. I'm on product development, healthcare expense. Can't do anything about that. That's not true. So if you go back to the original six or seven silent business killers, the most important one, in my view, was when your salespeople actually work for the customer. Now, that sounds like an oxymoron, right? Because any good sales guy will tell you, everything starts with the order. Customer's always right. Well, you know what? I got news for you out there, CEOs. Your customer wants to put you out of business. 
They really do. They want you to reduce your price every year, reduce it the next year, reduce it the year. And they will, if you let them, they will let you reduce your prices until oblivion. And, you know, sales guys like to schmooze with their customers. They like to play golf with them. They know their families. They go to the Christmas parties and all that. And if you have a salesperson that identifies more with your customer, and many of them do, than they do with your own company, then you need to make a change in your sales guys. It's one of those things that you do want them to truly understand the essence of their customer for which they're better able to serve. But at the end of the day, it's about that accountability. Yes, they're responsible for the sales, but who then do they become accountable for? And from a long-term perspective, their allegiance is no longer with the company for which they are paid and their compensation. So important to keep those lines of communication open and stay close to that model because they can leave, they can go to your customer and you're out those sales and those relationships. I'll tell you what, most CEOs are deathly afraid of terminating a sales guy. You know what? They're because, oh my God, just what you just said. Oh my God, the customers will hate me. They'll take the business somewhere else. You know, I have done that two or three times when I really needed to. And you know what? It wasn't the end of the world. It really wasn't the end of the world. So you have to make sure that your sales team is, I'll give you an example. If you ask a sales guy to raise a price, what's he going to say? Oh my God, I can't do that. No way. They'll take the business away. You know why they don't want to raise prices? The truth is because they would hurt their buddies. The customers are their friends and their buddies. And that's what they're really afraid of. If you have a sales guy that's like that, you got to take him under your wing and say, look, pal, Here's who you work for. You don't work for them. You work for me. The other problem, Deb, is they're out there all the time in the field, and they don't get much contact and absorption with headquarters. So you have to make sure you integrate them into the organization and you have them you know, back in the headquarters a lot. That's probably one of the biggest things. The other thing, and I love this, every time, Deb, I thought that everything was going, I got the CEO thing down. Oh, boy, my, my good. Everything's fine. Every time that's happened to me, a disaster strikes. So now, after all these years of disaster striking, when I rested on my laurels, thought everything was fine. Now, whenever I sit back and think everything's fine, I go, nope, 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 nope. Everything is not fine. So go digging. Find out what's wrong. Yeah. So this brings us into another thing. Before we go to another one of your great speaking points, you talk about healthcare expenses. Oh, I'll deal with it tomorrow. I'll deal with it another day. But that's like a risk. We talk about your resources in your organization, succession planning, are they a risk to the business? If they've got intellectual property and they leave, what is that risk? A good CFO and a good CEO partnership will constantly be asking those deeper questions of risk. And while you can't address everything, rolling the dice and ignoring it is what can be a failure. And I'm curious, why do some of those CEO leaders just sit on their laurels and don't address the risk? What How would you advise them <laughs> so that they need to qualify and quantify deeply all of these risks, if nothing else, to shake it out and at least know about it and put your head in the sand, but at least you know? How do you coach them? Well, the problem is CEOs like things that are nice and comfortable and going well. We like to be what I call, the publisher overrode me on that. I wanted to call it fat, dumb, and happy CEOs. That's what's wrong with manufacturing today. And CEOs tend to get fat, dumb, and happy, and they like it. They don't want to hear things are wrong. They don't want to hear things could go wrong. And by the way, boards are the same way. If as a CEO, you go to your board and you go, oh, my God, this is going to be horrible. 
but I got a plan. I could do this. They go, I don't want to hear that. I want to hear that everything's fine. And so CEOs have to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. They have to say, okay, these are these are all things that are right, but no company ever got blistered into oblivion because something was right. They always get blistered into oblivion, things that are wrong. So you have to get comfortable with digging in what's wrong. How can I mitigate that? And what is what is the worst case scenario if it happens? And they, they don't do that. They just want to be happy, dumb and happy. So I, I have two directions I want to go, in, but let me go into this next one, because then we're going to go into some live examples. One, you can put your head in the stand or ask stronger questions about where am I at risk because I don't want to be hit by it or off guard. You also talk about preparing companies for the next crisis. And I think then maybe for a highly aware CEO that after all, we've been through a crisis, we are absolutely going to go through another crisis at some time. It's a matter of when. How do you advise CEO leaders to prepare their company for the inevitable? Well, I tell them first thing, Deb, is when you're in a team full of your direct reports, your senior leaders, don't let them, I hate this, when when you're in a meeting and you've, you've been through this before, and someone says, let's take this offline. I know what that means. They want it. So they want to bury the conflict. Every organization has conflict. In fact, I, I did a keynote speech for Medtronic last year. They wanted to understand how some other companies that are kind of like them in the in the safety business, how they went wrong. And where they went wrong is they buried conflict. People in organizations are afraid of conflict because they think conflict is destructive. That's not true. Buried conflict is destructive. Productive conflict that's brought to the surface and managed correctly can be very constructive. And what happens is people sit around in a meeting and they go, oh, let's take that offline. Well, you know, well, I'm not sure about it. Maybe this is low. They don't deal with the issues, but they all know what the issues are. And so a CEO, I always tell my teams, Deb, not only is conflict encouraged in an open fashion, it's absolutely expected. And if you don't want to raise conflict and deal with conflict, then you can't stay here. And that's where the whole thing starts for CEOs. Find the conflict in your organizations because it's everywhere. And I don't, I don't expect a CEO to go nine levels down. But if he gives his first direct reports permission to deal with conflict and raise it in a productive way, and then they go one level down, the next thing you know, you got you don't have an organization that's conflict-free. That's never going to happen. But you have an organization that will deal with conflict and resolve it productively. You know, I love that example. And it is so relevant to something I'm dealing with. I am with a client right now. I'm learning their business, listening to meetings. But one time I said, because they weren't able to get the business done, there were key people that weren't attending the meeting. And I had seen this twice before. And I said, what can we do <laughs> to assure that we have the right accountability and representation for when we come together to be able to make decisions. Now, I said that in a very productive way, showing there's a gap here that needs to be resolved. And I actually said after the meeting, when I talked to the leader, I said, I hope I didn't come on too strong. I just said what I saw. He says, no, I sincerely appreciate it. And we realized it was the 800-pound gorilla in the room that nobody was saying but feeling. And thereafter, that person has started engaging with the people that needed to be in the room. So it causes change. It influences people to have the courage to constructively cite what is missing or what the gap is. Yeah, burying conflict is not the answer. Constructively dealing with it, that's the answer. 
Absolutely. Now you have coached and advised many that either have not identified risk or have not properly prepared for crisis. And I'm wondering if there's an example or somebody you've mentored or directly advised, what were they facing? And after you worked with them, how did they come out better on the other side? Well, you know, when you're facing a problem, it's the biggest problem you could ever imagine. It's never a medium-sized problem or a little problem. And you know this yourself, Deb, because you advise the CEOs. The problem isn't really that big right now. If you ignore it, it ends up being a whole lot bigger. And a, pro- a huge problem to CEO might not be so big to you or I because we've kind of been there and done that and seen that before. I would say the biggest problem that I, I ever coached the CEO on was succession planning, believe it or not, because most CEOs don't want to do succession planning. Most boards, if they got a successful CEO, I, I don't even want to think about succession planning. We're not going to do that. And the CEO that I advised on this, he was nearing retirement and his board was pressing him on succession planning. And he was afraid that if he picked one of his subordinates and recommended that person to the board over another, the whole thing would fall apart. The other subordinate would quit because he wasn't named for that or nominated for that, whatever, and all kinds of problems. And I said, you know what? I said, why don't you just ask the guy? How would you feel about, I don't know if this is going to happen. I can't control the board. I can only run. How would you feel about if I did that? So you're not guessing. Most leaders tend to guess the worst out of their subordinates, but if they ask, it may not be as bad as you think. And he ended up saying, I wouldn't want the job. I can't, I couldn't do the job. And it was like, he was obsessing every night over this and didn't know what to do about it. I said, let's start by asking somebody what they think. It's so simple, but so challenging at the same time. Well, it is because interpersonal skills are are not necessarily the skills of most CEOs. Most CEOs are what? They're analytic. They understand the numbers. They got, they're either come from a marketing background or a sales background. So they're very aggressive and all, but interpersonal skills is not in their forte. And I would advise every CEO out there, have yourself an industrial psychologist that you can call upon anytime somebody who's really good at this stuff. I've, I've used the same guy for 35 years through four different companies that you can call upon because every person has strengths and every person has weaknesses. CEO's got a lot of strength, but if you have a weakness where your interpersonal skills are kind of weak, get somebody to help you with that. So you actually went to my next question, but let's just be very direct here. You have worked with a lot of C-suite leaders and they may be missing some skills. Do you see any trends or one or two skills that are missing? So if there's anybody aspiring to that position, they can start working on them now. I'll give you the one that comes to the top of my list every time, Deb. It's a little better now than it used to be. I talk culture a lot, as you probably saw in my books. A few years ago, if you said culture to a CEO, he'd give you the deer in the headlights look, and they go, I don't talk to me about culture. Tell me how the hard stuff how I can get more market share, how I can get more product development, all that kind of stuff. And my answer was always the same. It's you can get that through culture. People want checklists, right? In fact, whenever somebody asked me to write a piece for any of the magazines, give me seven things that a CEO can do to be successful. It doesn't work that way. I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. It's a little more nuanced than that, a little more complicated than that. So I tell CEOs all the time, work on your culture. If you have what I call a Cirque du Soleil culture, you've seen Cirque du Soleil probably, they come to work every day wanting to do better than they did before, and they're performing right on the edge. And I say to CEOs all the time, 
why wouldn't you want a culture just like Cirque du Soleil? And they go, well, yeah, you know, this is not a circus and all that kind of stuff. But you want to start by building a culture of people who want to be high performers, who respect one another and respect the initiatives that they're working at. And once you have a culture that's built on that kind of foundation, Deb, you don't have to tell them what to do. You just lead the direction. You give them the resources and all. Let them go to town and they'll do amazing things. So I tell CEOs all the time, work on your culture. Everything else takes care of itself. I so agree with that. And I'm smiling. I worked for a very small client. They were about five employees, five contractors, and I was helping them to upgrade their standards. They needed a certification. But then I said, you know, how do you have your daily, weekly, monthly communication meeting? What format, what process, what sheet do you use? Can you show me? And he says, we just talk to each other every day. What a novel idea. I know. So simple. So everybody knew exactly what was going on. There was no need for any of that administrative thing. And I find, though, that the larger companies, as they grow, they lose that connectivity to the people. They lose what made them great over time. And even the medium-sized companies have great culture. They have can-do attitudes. And I'm working with a company right now, amazingly talented people. But I don't think the cultures have melded together to get a high potential. There's just always us and them. And I'm going to do my darndest to try to evolve that as well. I agree. Culture is paramount. Now, I'm going to ask you a question as a CEO of a company, past CEOs of other companies. What keeps you up at night? I mean, you have a lot of answers and insight for others, but what keeps you up at night regarding your business or others? A lot. I mean, you know, if you're a CEO, every CEO has to live, eat and breathe the company. I'm sorry. That's part of the drill. It's part of the game. If you don't like that, stay down, you know, <laughs> as a senior vice president or whatever. And I'm, of course, during the pandemic, I obsess over uh, not every detail in the business because my senior leaders take care of that. But I'll give you one example, Deb. I obsess over order intake, order intake. Every night at five o'clock, the IT guys put out what the orders were for the day. And if I don't get that order by 510, I'm asking questions, where the hell is that report? Because order intake is the lifeblood of every business. And if order intake goes down by maybe two or three days, and I'm starting to ask some hard questions. So, so that's where I start as, as an obsession. And at night, what keeps me awake at night, besides the normal everyday operating things, which I don't really get involved much, what I obsess with at night is, what don't I know? You know, it's easy what you know, and I see you're reacting, you agree with me. What you know is never going to kill you. What you know is never going to kill your business because you know it and you do something about it. It's what don't I know, in my mind, trying to identify what threats are out there that I'm not aware of, that I don't know. And what opportunities are out there that I'm not aware of and that I don't know? And how do I uncover those? That's pretty much what keeps me up at night. And that is your job is to continually ask the questions about what are the risks and what are the opportunities and what can I or you do to support the organization to mitigate those risks or leverage the opportunities? Hence, then the order intake process will take care of itself. Exactly right. This interview has flown by so fast. Your insights are amazing. I have gotten so much from this, either validating what I'm doing or realizing there is much work to do, like you, to evolve the C-suite leader of tomorrow. If we had to bring this to a close now, do you have any parting thoughts, pieces of advice for people either in the C-suite or those coming up so that they can mitigate or avoid a crisis or be better prepared for the future? 
Yeah, you know, I just wrote a piece the other day for, I think, Harvard Business Review. And I think I entitled it, How to Build a Career the Hard Way and Why You Should Want to. And my advice to younger people wanting to build a career is go take the crappy assignments. Go take the jobs nobody else wants. Dig into the details. Get your fingernails dirty. Learn everything you can about every part of the organization. Because when people sort of skip that part, Deb, and they end up being CEOs, all of a sudden things are going wrong. They go, I don't understand. I, I don't understand what happened. This is not the way organizations are supposed to behave. Organizations behave any damn way they want to. And if you don't, you haven't been in the guts of an organization, you can't possibly understand that. So my advice to up-and-comers is that take every dirty job you can, learn the organization in and out, and don't be afraid to go anywhere, anytime. Steve, it is a pleasure for me to get to know you. You have so many amazing insights. You have so many great resources, all five of your books. I invite everybody to check out the show notes, check out Steve's work so that you can gain valuable insights and navigate your careers and business opportunities with confidence. Steve, you've been an amazing guest. Thank you so much for dropping in on the podcast. Well, thank you, Deb, so much. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for listening to the Drop-In CEO Podcast. My new book, CEO's Compass, will change the way you think about leadership, navigate rapid transformation, and elevate the leaders of tomorrow. If you're feeling off track, the CEO's Compass assessment will guide you to peace of mind in days, not months. You can learn more about the CEO's Compass by visiting my website at dropinceo.com. Now go out and lead, inspire, and achieve your goals.